Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Tuli Lau. I'm one of the elders here, and it's uh, my privilege and my joy to bring to you God's word. Let's begin with prayer. Oh, Lord God, prepare our hearts to hear your word. May your spirit speak to us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, Lord, be all pleasing to you. We pray this through your son's name. Amen. Now, uh, last Wednesday, I had an annual physical, so I went to Northwestern, uh, med the medical system that's right across the road from us. So after my physical, you know, I drove out of the parking lot into, Waukeg uh, into Waukegan Road, and there was a stop sign there, stop light, so I stopped at the junction. And when I stopped at the junction, I looked at the right, and there was a man, a South Asian Indian man there on the right-hand side, holding up a, a sign, waving his hand to catch attention, and it says, please help, you need to pay rent. What should I do? What would you do? Would you avert your gaze and just drive off? What would you do? And I think that the, today's passage on the parable of the Good Samaritan has something to say to us on this topic. And so what I'm going to do today is that I'm going to basically uh, tell the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, explain it, draw the big idea, and then draw some reflections for us today. But let me a little bit of the context of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan occurs in chapter 10, but it's stuck within this passage in terms, this main section of the Gospel of Luke from Luke chapter 9 to 19, which is called the Travel Narrative. And within this travel narrative, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. And as he's headed towards Jerusalem, he's teaching his disciples in terms of what the nature and call of discipleship is all about. So the parable of the Good Samaritan helps us to understand and clarifies what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus. All right, so let me just begin with the story here. And it begins here with in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Then an expert in the law stood up. An expert in the law is not probably not an attorney, but an expert in the law is someone who was very well versed in the law, meaning in the scripture, in the Torah. So an expert in the law would have been someone who was a theologian, uh, oh dear, a seminary professor. <laughs> All right. And so the expert in law stood up here to test Jesus. Now, usually uh, in those settings here, teachers stood, sorry, teachers sat on the ground, and then students would stand up out of sign of respect to ask a question to the teacher. So by standing up this expert in the law, this Bible scholar, was showing respect to Jesus. But it goes on to say that he stood up to test him. So his standing up was almost a sign of hypocrisy because he was standing up primarily to test Jesus. Now, I've been a professor for many years, and there are many reasons why students ask questions. You know, students sometimes generally want to learn something, all right? Sometimes students ask questions to show off how much they know, especially to the other students, and sometimes they ask questions to embarrass their professor. 
And in this case, the expert in the law posed this question to embarrass Jesus. And so he began to ask this question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And here then, Jesus then responds and asks him, what is written in the law? He asks, how do you read it? You're an expert in the law. What does the law say? And so the person then answered, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Now that's from Deuteronomy 6, 5 there, all right? Meaning that you have to love God with the totality of your being. You have to love God with the totality of all your being. And then he follows up with the other commandment here is that you have to love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from Leviticus 19. All right, so Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. If you're able to love God with the totality of your being, then you don't need grace and forgiveness. Anyone who can love their neighbors totally doesn't need grace. Do this and you have eternal life. But Jesus' statement here is not an endorsement of salvation by works for who can love God with the totality of their being? Who can love others as they love themselves? Who can be perfect as God is perfect? So the lawyer was somewhat stuck in a quandary here, but he goes on to say he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to say, I'm really not that bad, you know? I'm pretty good especially when compared to other people. I mean, the desire to justify ourselves, it's so common. I mean, it goes all the way back to Adam. Do you remember when God confronted Adam regarding his sin? What was the first thing that came out of Adam? Not my fault. The woman you gave me, she was the one who gave me the fruit. When God confronted Eve, what did Eve say? Not my fault. The serpent deceived me. So all of us here have this tendency to justify ourselves. Instead of letting God justify us, we have this desire to justify ourselves. But salvation, but this eternal life begins when we recognize that we cannot justify ourselves before God. Nonetheless, the lawyer wanted to justify himself and ask this question, who is my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Now, the category of who a neighbor is is very much debatable in Jewish circles because in the Old Testament, the common understanding was that your neighbor was a fellow Israelite. But then in certain parts of the Old Testament, for example, in Leviticus 19.34, it went on to include the resident alien that was living within your community. But then there are other Jewish texts that say that you should do good to the righteous, but show no love to the sinners. Because by showing love to the sinners, you might be opposing and helping the one who is against God. But who was the sinners? Typically, it must include the foreigners because they do not worship the same God as we do. So the category of who is my neighbor was a very much debated category here. Yeah. So Jesus then took up this question and said, well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and then he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, and leaving him half 
dead. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho here, it's an 18-mile road that descended more than half a mile in elevation, that you went down more than half a mile in elevation here. It's isolated terrain, an easy target for robbers. In some areas, the path is so narrow that it's almost impossible to miss someone who was lying there on the road. It's mainly rocky, no food, no water, no shelter here. The man who was then utterly robbed here and left half dead would be totally exposed and would certainly die if he had received no help. So he was in a pickle. He was in a dire situation. But hey, guess what happened? A priest happened to be coming down. What luck! And a priest too, a representative, surely someone who was pious here, right? So, but here, the priest came, went down here, the road, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Why did he pass by on the other side? Was he afraid of becoming ritually unclean because this man was almost close to being dead? Or was he afraid that it might be a trap and that he might be robbed in the process here? I mean, if you were driving down through the south side of Chicago at 3 in the morning, all right, would you stop your car? Get out of your car? If you saw someone asking for directions, or if you saw someone hitchhiking, would you do that? I'm not so sure whether I would do that myself, all right? So the priest might be saying that I don't want to be a target for other robbers here. Maybe it might be a trap too. So ultimately, no reason is given, and the priest passes on. Then the next person that happened to come on was the Levite here. Now, a Levite was responsible for other important tasks of the, of the temple, being a gatekeeper, being a musician, being a janitor, being one of the security guards, but ultimately functioning as an assistant to the priest. And typically, he, many people in Jewish society would consider him to be another example, pious person. But when he arrived at a place, almost, you know, it seems to be getting a little bit closer to the person, wanted to check out the situation, all right? But when he arrived at the place and saw him, he also passed by the other side. Now, if the Levite had seen the priest going ahead of him, he would say, if the priest, who knows the Bible better than I, didn't do anything, what am I, a mere Levite, to do? All right? So he passed by on the other side. Again, no reason is given. But then we then come to this point here, but a Samaritan on his journey came upon him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Now, this is surprising that Jesus would mention a Samaritan in his parable, because Jewish society was usually divided into three groups, the priests, the Levites, and the lay people, the Jewish lay people. So the people in the crowds would have expected that, well, Jesus had talked about priests, Jesus had talked about Levite, he would now talk about a Jewish layperson. But instead of that, you know, instead of mentioning it, you have a foreigner, a Samaritan here. And Samaritans were generally hated by the Jews. I mean, after all, they were considered to be the descendants of the people brought in by the Syrians to colonize the land. Thus, you know, there was enmity towards them even from the get-go. Moreover here, you know, in the Talmud, which is the collection of teachings by the, by the rabbis, it has said that eating bread with a Samaritan was equivalent to eating pork here. 
Moreover, their theology was kind of shaky. They said that you have to worship. The temple needed to be at Mount Gerizim, whereas Jews said that the temple needed to be in uh, Jerusalem. And during the time of Jesus, there was a lot of hostility between the Jews and Samaritans because even in a couple of 30 years earlier, the Samaritans had done a dastardly thing. They had taken human bones and scattered it in the Jerusalem temple during the Passover and therefore defiling the temple. So there was a lot of hatred. There was a lot of animosity towards the Samaritans here. But what's more intriguing is that the Samaritan showed compassion. If the Samaritan was typically viewed as the villain in Jewish thought, the crowds would be expecting that the Samaritans would take advantage of the person who was dead, who was almost half dead here. Instead, the Samaritan showed compassion. Now, why did Jesus include a Samaritan into that story? Why did Jesus include a Samaritan into the story? If Jesus had not used a Samaritan, but just used a Jewish layperson so that it becomes a parable of the good Jewish layperson, the function of the parable would be just to encourage us to show kindness to strangers. Just show kindness to strangers here. But by inserting a Samaritan into the story so that it becomes the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke wants to teach us that the parable is more than showing kindness to strangers. It is showing us that the kingdom of God is open to those whom we may write off as unacceptable. And that the parable teaches us that we cannot set limits on those whom we should love as a neighbor whether they are of a political persuasion from us, whether they are of a different socioeconomic status from us, whether they are of a different ethnic category from us, whether they are from a different nationality from us, that we cannot set limits on those whom we should love as a neighbor. It means then that we should show compassion and mercy to our enemies, to those whom we disagree with politically or theologically, or to those who are different from us ethnically, it means also that we should show compassion to those who, let's say, for example, had COVID, even though they were anti-vaxxers. We should show compassion to people and not set limits on those whom we should love as our neighbors here. And the story then goes on to here in verse 34. This Samaritan went over to him and bandaged his wounds. Notice, he didn't go first and ask him, hey, are you a Samaritan? Yeah, if a Samaritan, I'll help you. But if you're not a Samaritan, I'm out of here. He didn't do that. He just went over and helped him and bandaged his wounds here, possibly tearing up his own clothes to provide the, the rags to bandage up his wounds. He poured on olive oil and wine, wine to clean the wound and oil to soothe the wound here. Then he put him on his own animal, which means then that he had to walk. All right? And in those days here, the person who led the animal was usually the servant. The person who sat on the donkey was usually the master. So the person here, the Samaritan woman, by leading the donkey to the inn, basically took the posture of a servant here. And so he took the, the and he led the animals here and then brought him to an inn and took care of him. Notice, he didn't just dump the person at the inn and just took off. No, he stayed on to take care of the person. 
And then he went to, started to giving two denarii, which was able to support the person for two weeks. Two denarii was able to support him for two weeks. Gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I will reimburse you. Not that he is going to reimburse you when he gets well, but I will reimburse you for whatever extra you did. In all of this, you know, that the kindness that the Samaritan showed was risky. It was costly. Robbers might still be around. Worse, the person could have died, and then the family would have blamed him. There was this case, you know, in 2011 in China. There was a bus driver. He was, you know, driving down this road here, and then he saw an old woman lying on the road with her tricycle turned upside down. So he instinctively then stopped the bus and then helped the woman. And then, but since, you know, there were other passengers on the bus, when a passing by villager came, you know, he asked the passing villager to help the woman. Everything seemed to appear to be fine until three hours later, he found himself at a police station being accused of a hit-and-run accident. And the person who accused him was the woman he had actually helped. He would have been a pickle if it had not been that there was a video camera in his bus that showed that he was truly helping the person, the old woman here. So what the Samaritan did was risky, it was costly, by helping someone, by being involved in the lives of others, he put himself at risk. And we may put ourselves at risk when we help others too. So that's the main story here. And then Jesus asked this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Notice here that what's surprising is that Jesus doesn't use the same question that the lawyer posed. Remember, what was the question that the lawyer asked? Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? What is the question that Jesus asked? Who became a neighbor to the man who needed help? And this is intriguing, you know, that the way that Jesus poses the question is intriguing for two reasons. Firstly, Jesus doesn't answer the lawyer's question because it is the wrong question to ask given the presuppositions behind the question. You remember, when the lawyer asked the question, he was wanting to justify himself. He was wanting to justify himself. And the question itself then implies that there is a category such as a non-neighbor, that there's someone that is not a neighbor, that's someone that I don't need to help at all. That was the presupposition that was going behind the lawyer's head. There must be somebody I don't need to help, all right? But Jesus doesn't answer that question because it was the wrong question to ask given the lawyer's presupposition. Secondly, the reason why it is intriguing here is that Jesus changes the question because he wants a change in our perspective, 
a change in our perspective. When I ask, who is my neighbor, I am taking the perspective of someone who is in a position of superiority, deciding who should I help. Should I help this person or should I not help the person? I am taking the position of a superiority in asking whom I should help. But when Jesus asks who became a neighbor to the one who is in need, Jesus is asking us to see the situation from the perspective of the one who needed help, the one who is in a position of inferiority. And it is only when we are able to see the situation from the perspective of the one who needs help, when we see the, pers- the situation from the perspective of the one who really needs help, then we are able to extend mercy. When we are able to put ourselves in the position of the one who is in dire need, only then will we be able to extend mercy here. So that through framing of the question that Jesus did, Jesus wants us to show mercy to whoever he places in a path, without consideration, again, of their ethnicity or social standing. So then, you know, the lawyer then answered this, the one who showed mercy to him. Do you notice it? He answered the one who showed mercy to him. He couldn't even make himself say it was the Samaritan, but rather the one who showed mercy to him. And then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Go and be a neighbor. Instead of spending endless debates in terms of what it means to be a neighbor, just do it. Now here, when we understand the parable within the immediate context here, if we take the abstract parable on its own, it tells us that we cannot set limits on those whom we should love as a neighbor. We should show mercy to whoever God puts in our path, and especially as we go about our everyday life here, even those that we think are unacceptable. But the parable is placed within the context of the interaction between the lawyer and Jesus, especially between the command of loving God and loving your neighbor between loving God and loving your neighbor. And this then tells us that there is a connection between loving God and loving others. And that you see this connection between loving God and loving others even in Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, you know, there is a lot of commands on the horizontal level. In terms of it, you have to respect your mother and father horizontal, right? Do not strip your vineyard bare, leave them for the poor. Do not steal. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything is all on a horizontal level. But the end part of these verses, take a look at it. There is this refrain, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. So that it's telling us here, by all of this here, the, the phrase, I am the Lord, is tagged on to these verses as the justification for these commands, meaning that how we relate to others is predicated on our relationship to God. In other words, loving God requires us to love others 
who are made in the image of God. Loving God requires us to love others who are made in the image of God. And this then leads us to the main idea here in this passage here, is that loving God requires us not to set limits on those whom we should love as a neighbor. I got this idea from another scholar by the name of David Garland, and I think that he's right in this, that loving God requires us not to set limits on those whom we should love as our neighbor here. But if we truly love God, who would also, we would also truly love others sacrificially. But how can we love others sacrificially when we have limited resources? How can we love God, others sacrificially when we have, love, uh, we have limited resources? And several weeks ago, you know, Pastor Tim uh, mentioned what he calls the pr- principle of moral proximity. Do you remember that? He mentions this principle of moral proximity here. And the principle of moral proximity here is that we have a moral responsibility to those that are closest to us, beginning with our family, and then extending on to our church, and extending on to the local community, and then the global community. And that the further it gets, the less personally responsible we are. In other words, you know, it is to prioritize your work within your primary circles of influence. So that there's these uh, concentric circles here. And this idea was mentioned by St. Augustine, and it's also clearly biblical. For example, here, in terms of the emphasis on the family, we see this in 1 Timothy 5.8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Focusing on the family, we see this focus in terms of the church in Galatians 6.10. Therefore, as if opportunity, let us do good to everybody, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. The emphasis on the local community is seen in terms of the parable of the Good Samaritan, that we are to help those random people whom God places in our everyday path as we go about our affairs. And so there's a focus in terms of local community, And there's a focus in terms of the global community when you see the Macedonian churches providing support for the Jerusalem church, even though they have never seen the Jerusalem church at all. And so we have these concentric circles, these moral proximity here, and that loving God requires us not to set limits on those whom we should love, but since we are limited in our time and resources, the principle of moral proximity is a good principle to hold. Namely, that we have a moral priority to help those that are closest to us, beginning with our family, our church, our local community, and then extending on to the global community here. The message here of the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, is radical. It's uncomfortable. It is hard. For the love that this parable calls for is costly. It will inconvenience us. It will disrupt our schedule. It will be costly financially, emotionally. It will be messy as we enter into the lives of others. People will take advantage of us. It may even expose us to danger. It's a hard, it's a hard teaching. I want to be comfortable. 
I want to be safe. I don't want people to mess up my schedule. I'm so busy already as it is. But nonetheless here, Scripture is telling us, is telling me that we are to manifest self-sacrificial love. I don't know why I picked this parable to preach on, right? It's because it's, it's, it's just, I find it very hard. I find it actually very hard to put this into practice uh, because the demands of it appear to be so great. How can we manifest such self-sacrificial love, the self-sacrificial love that Jesus calls for? Let me suggest two, two avenues, all right? In terms of reflections here, primarily, the first thing here is by admitting that we are not exhibiting sacrificial love that Jesus calls for. Tim Keller mentions it, that real love doesn't begin until we realize that we aren't truly loving others. Real love doesn't begin until we realize that we aren't truly loving to others. All too often, we are very much like the lawyer who wants to justify ourselves. We want to justify ourselves. We give reasons as follows. I'm already giving to the church. I'm already tithing. I'm already busy at church. Isn't this supposed to be the job of the government? All right. Hey, I don't have the spiritual gift of giving. Or sometimes we blame the victim. They are in this mess because of their own fault and irresponsibility. If I help them, I am only enabling them to carry on living in an irresponsible manner. I have a tendency, we have a tendency to justify a lack of love, a lack of mercy, a lack of compassion. But the first step in getting close to exhibiting the mercy that Jesus calls for is to dis- that Jesus calls us to display is to realize that we fall short of it. That, I think, is the first step. The second step here, I think, is to recognize that we have to experience the mercy that is from Jesus, who is the ultimate Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan does, in itself does not portray Jesus as the Good Samaritan, but within the overall flow of the narrative of the Gospel of Luke, within the overall flow of the Gospel of narrative, you can't help but observe that Jesus is ultimately the Good Samaritan. Because even in chapter 4, when Jesus begins his ministry, Jesus has already said and declares that he has come to preach good news to the poor, that he has come to proclaim release to the captives and to set free the oppressed, and that Jesus is the ultimate Good Samaritan. And we have to experience the mercy that he extends to us before we can extend mercy towards others. Because the motivation to extend mercy towards others is to first experience the depth of mercy that we ourselves have received from God. If we do not see ourselves as those who need mercy, but consider ourselves to be self-reliant, self-made man, we would invariably say to the person who needed help, hey, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Why can't you do the same? 
you should be able to do the same. And so we need to see ourselves as those who were in the ditch, as those who were bruised, as those who were left behind dead. And that we are the ones who needed mercy and help from Jesus. We need to experience it, not just know it, not just know it, but to experience it in our hearts. And that once we experience it in our hearts, we will then be able to extend mercy towards others. If we find that we are dry, that we are burnt out extending mercy towards others, go back to the cross. Plead with God. Please, God, help me to experience the mercy that you've given to me all over again. And then extending mercy will not be the means by which we earn eternal life, but will be the validation will be the proof that we have truly experienced mercy that is from Jesus, that we have truly experienced mercy that is from Jesus, the good Samaritan here. When we have experienced the mercy of God, our gratitude to God, then it's a motivation to love sacrificially. In this way, our sacrificial love does not become the means to earn our salvation, but rather the validation that we truly have experienced compassion. The work of us extending mercy towards others is challenging, difficult, and I'm so appreciative of the ministry of our care and compassion deacons in wanting to be just intertwined in the lives that sometimes that are very messy. But Jesus has called us that we can't just leave it only to the care and compassion deacons, but that he has called us to be all ourselves involved and also to the church collectively as a whole, that our mission to extend mercy maybe had to be something more than just giving a basket of food at Thanksgiving. It has to be something more than that. And so Jesus is calling for us to do something radical, something difficult. I wish that I could talk a little bit more about this, you know, but there's one resource that I want to point out to you in case you want to know a little bit more, but, but it's written by Tim Keller, it's called Ministries of Mercy, the Core of the Jericho Road. And in it, he unpacks a little bit more in terms of what it means to have this mercy towards others here. So, what did I do when I saw the man holding a sign asking for money? What did I do? What would you do? I averted my gaze, wondered why he didn't get a job, and just drove off. That was what I did. But that was a selfish response. I regretted it, repent of it, because if we truly love God, we would truly also love others that God has placed in our path. But how could I show love to the person who was panhandling? Should I give him money? Should I do something else? I haven't talked to Pastor Tim or the other elders about what they would do, but my first inclination is not to give money. If I have time, I'll purchase food for them or the groceries that they need. If I don't have time, then I think that what I would do is to prepare beforehand and have several gift cards ready. Gift cards to Burger King, 
of gift cards to Walmart that cannot be used to purchase alcohol, tobacco, the lottery, or firearms. Because I do not want the help that I give towards others to extend any of their bad habits. There will clearly be times when people take advantage of me, when I'm ripped off. But being compassionate and merciful is at times more important than ensuring that I'm not being ripped off. It's more important at times than trying to be shrewd. Now, I'm sure some of you have more creative ways in terms of how we can show love, mercy, and compassion to others, and I'll be interested to learn from you all. But let us encourage and remind ourselves that loving God cannot be kept in the abstract, but must be lived out in the present instead of endlessly debating about who we should help, Jesus tells us to be a neighbor to those whom we see are in need. As Jesus says, go and do likewise. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, this is a hard teaching. I know it's hard for me because I want to be comfortable. I want to be safe. I'm so busy enough as it already is. But yet you have laid it out so clearly that if we see a brother in need, how can we claim that we love you when we do not extend love towards others that you have placed in our path? So I pray, Lord, that you constantly remind me of the mercy that I have already received so abundantly from you. And the mercy that I extend towards others can never compare to that. And having tasted and experienced your mercy, Lord, may that gratitude then motivate me to step up in faith, even though I'm afraid, to step up in faith, to help others whom you have placed in my path. May your spirit help us to do that. We pray this through your son's name. Amen.